knowledge, expertise, and opinion who've got serious contributions to make. Uh, people very often that the mainstream media may not may tend to ignore, but what we're discovering is that many of our guests here at Palestine Deep Dive are being taken up by the mainstream media because the mainstream media is beginning to realize that it's rather out of touch. Now, these past few weeks have pushed the question of Palestine to the very front of the global agenda. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Um, and in recent days, after President Biden of the United States told Prime Minister Netanyahu to accept a ceasefire, a ceasefire of sorts has ended the military strikes in Gaza. But our question today is ceasefire? What ceasefire? Because there are pro provocations continuing. And only today we've seen yet more uh, incidences at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, more stun grenades have been fired in, more, there's been a lot of, uh, of continuing tensions and trouble around the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And many Palestinians are saying there doesn't seem to be much evidence of serious, uh, uh, a serious take on ceasefire if activities like that are being encouraged. So today, from the front line, as it were, we're being we're very, very fortunate to actually be joined by two seasoned campaigners. They're both in Jerusalem. Uh, we're joined uh, once again here at Palestine Deep Dive by Boudou Hassan. Boudou, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and also by Amani Khalifa. Now, Boudou is a legal researcher for the Jerusalem Legal Aid and Human Rights Center. And Amani Khalifa is the local mobilization coordinator at Grassroots Al-Qud. Now, I mean, we've got people, uh, as we know, who join us from all over the world. Um, many who do know a great deal about the situation in Israel-Palestine, but many, of course, don't. So I just really wanted to begin by saying um, to, to you both, can you, can you tell us something about what you actually do? You would tell us about your day jobs. Tell us what you've been up to over these past uh, seismic few weeks. Boudou, can I begin with you? Can you tell us something about what you what you are actually doing? Yeah, it's been um, it, it's been a pretty outstanding month and a half, really, for anyone living in Jerusalem, especially living uh, amidst this period and working. Um, uh, and having to do something, obviously, with all things that started in Damascus Gate and evolved into movement in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, we've been following, obviously, the cases in Sheikh Jarrah for a decade and somehow hoping against hope that it will finally capture the attention it deserves. And suddenly what, you know, what didn't happen in a decade almost happened in a month but only obviously thanks to the amazing mobilization by the people, the, by the families. And as people who have been following these cases legally uh, to see how the shift, how people started challenging the legal discourse uh, is really amazing. Obviously it's, uh, it's a lot of pressure because you need to do so many things. You need so many interviews. Uh, and also be with the, with your own people as well uh, during the war on Gaza. And I think Amani had also the same problem. We yeah. couldn't sleep. Uh, and uh, it's as if staying sleepless somehow would save your friends there. Uh, but for the first time, really, we were following what was going on in Gaza. And we, would, we didn't feel as impotent as we usually do feel. Because this time we felt like here too, we had this agency to help. Because by being on the street, by protesting, by sharing, by actively being in solidarity and support of our people in Gaza, we could do something to help, not just share the news and pray that our friends will be safe. Budu, do, do you work with um, some of the families who have been facing these forced evictions? Um, and, and have you been working also with some, some of the Palestinians who have been at the sharp end of some of these uh, uh, heavy-handed tactics and clearing away demonstrators? I mean, t t tell us something about the people you're working with and, and, and what you can actually do to help. 
Um, personally, I work in legal research, so I actually write about the systems and the tools, especially the so-called legal tools, bureaucracies, and the Israeli complex legal system that is employed in order to uh, ethnically cleanse Jerusalem of its Palestinians from the denial of family unification permits to the forcible displacement of Palestinians from Jerusalem, and also, and obviously also the withholding of Palestinian martyrs' bodies. Now, as we speak, Israel detains the corpses uh, in morgues and in cemeteries of numbers of 254 Palestinians, in addition to more than 70 Palestinians whose bodies are withheld as bargaining chips. So we work in direct contact with families whose loved ones bodies are withheld in Israeli morgues as bargaining chips or has been have been withheld in the cemeteries of numbers for decades. Uh, and obviously, we work with people, uh, our lawyers work with people who whose homes are threatened with demolition uh, because they built without permit, because Israel obviously denies Palestinians the right to build with permit in Jerusalem as it controls every aspect of Palestinian lives in Jerusalem. So this is, we just get a glimpse of what people face on a daily basis. And we all know that we don't really expect the Israeli courts to bring justice to the people because it's at the end of the day, the Israeli courts are part and parcel of Israel's colonial system. And, and this is what the cases in Sheikh Jarrah have proven recently that only thanks to popular mobilization have people actually put pressure on the system to actually yield to their demands. Well, Buddha, thank you very much, because in all of that, the whole series of, uh, of revelations, um, a, a, a great deal of information there, frankly, that again, uh, we outside have not really been able to learn about from the media, but thank you to you that we do know now. Uh, Amani, if I may come to you, welcome to Palestine Deep. Thank you, Deep Dive. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Can, can you tell us something about what your work is all about, what you have been doing, and what have, what's been your own personal experience and your family's experience in Jerusalem these past few weeks? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Um, so as you mentioned in the beginning, I'm the local mobilization coordinator at the Grassroots al Quds, which is a Palestinian platform for Palestinian community mobilization and networking in Jerusalem. Our goal um, is uh, for our Palestinian communities to make the change they wish to see in Jerusalem and build a vision in the future um, that they have for the city themselves. And we do this work uh, on three main levels. First, we research uh, the history of the communities as well as the current realities, aiming to provide and amplify Palestinian perspective and analysis of the Jerusalem's political context. Second, we network and mobilize locally amongst the fragmented um, and isolated Palestinian communities and neighborhoods in Jerusalem. And on the third level, we connect and network between Jerusalem uh, and Palestine in general and solidarity movements around the world. So our role it is um, for now, uh, for instance, connecting what um, is happening in uh, Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, for instance. I've been there in the community, as Boudour mentioned earlier, we have been there in Sheikh Jarrah in 2009 when three um, families were evicted. But it's really important for us to provide the wider, broader analysis of the situation and not to be to look only at uh, these cases as individual cases running in Israeli courts. And all the time to provide this um, uh, broader uh, political context of these events um, and uh, put them out there and make the connections. Uh, personally, um, it's been truly overwhelming again. Um, uh, hard times, but full uh, with pride, as uh, Boudour mentioned. Um, I was trying to be as much as I can in, on the ground, be with the people, protest as well, and not uh, speak about all of these events to the media, um, and uh, speak with journalists, connect them, uh, make sure that the voice of these communities is heard as much as we can, and with our 
political analysis because this is the shift now. It's not the imposition of uh, Western analysis on what is happening in Jerusalem and in Pal Palestine in general, but our own understanding of the situation that is being delivered um, to the broader audience or to the international audience in, in, in this case. And more important for us, especially on this phase, is organizing. Because what Israel is trying to kill all the time, this unity, and um, prevent us from forming um, um, separated, independent local committees from the state of Israel, this is what they fear the most, us being independent, us work independently and being organized. So working with the lawyers, with, with volunteer uh, volunteers who want to help and, and form all of these committees, not only in Jerusalem, but in, in different places in, in Palestine, in, in 48 and in the West Bank as well. Amani, tell us, because, you know, some of us don't know, I mean, East Jerusalem is uh, under Israeli occupation. It has been since 1967 uh, under international law. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's governance status is, um, is, is, is regarded as very specially by the United Nations as an area that's a, a part of the city that is occupied, and, but that is designated for a Palestinian capital. But tell us, um, are there sizable Palestinian communities in West Jerusalem? And uh, do, do you, are you able to connect with them if, even if you can't cross the actual uh, artificial border that has been put there? Can you, tell us about the pa Palestinian communities in West Jerusalem, if you will. Yes, sure. So let's actually uh, break and, and change all of this terminology between East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one city that uh, its occupation started in started in 48, and back then 38 communities and neighborhoods in um, the west the west part were uh, depopulated and ethnically cleansed. And um, this is what happened in the rest of Palestine, but specifically in uh, the west part of uh, Jerusalem. So the, the, when people and the international law, language, and rhetoric refer to this as an occupation that started only in 1967, it's a huge misunderstanding of the situation. Um, if, we, if we go back to the current realities of the residents of Sheikh Jarrah, part of them actually, they are refugees from the west part of Jerusalem. In order to understand this, we need to understand that this colonial regime is started Actually, it started way before 1948, but the culmination of it happened in 1948 when the State of Israel was founded. There is no actual border between uh, the both, both sides, and this um, division is not even a geographical division. It's a colonial division because you have colonies, Israeli colonies in different kinds in the east part of Jerusalem, and you have the rest in the west part of Jerusalem. So even this geographical division is not accurate. And we need to change this uh, rhetoric uh, about the city. Uh, but and unfortunately, I mean, um, most of Palestinians were forced to flee from the west side of the city back in 1948. Um, so we don't have Palestinians um, in, in that part nowadays. It's full of settlers who took Palestinian homes that remained in, in some communities. Israel didn't demolish the homes, but it kept them and replaced uh, the owners with Israeli settlers. Thank you. I mean, uh, we, we, we read that uh, there are many Palestinians who still uh, hold the keys to their doors, uh, uh, the doors of their homes that were taken, um, hoping one day to return, still retaining the legal rights to do so. Um, Badu, if I may come to you, actually, Badu, if I may also say, we've got a slight degree of interference. Um, I, I think perhaps it might be best if, if we all switch off when we're not um, speaking. But Badu, coming to you, um, and I just wanted to ask, because we have seen, I mean, ever since the, uh, the ceasefire, the declaration of a ceasefire, ever since we assume that President Biden told Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, that he would have to stop. Um, 
but we have seen continuing um, incidents, uh, and we've seen continuing incidents, not least around the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Can you tell us something about what's been happening in Jerusalem, what's been happening at the mosque, um, and also tell us, because we're reading, is it illegal for Palestinians to fly the Palestinian flag uh, in Jerusalem? Is that is that true? And is that the is that the reason that that uh, the military has been used to to surround the mosque again? Can you can you explain the situation, Fadir? Okay, so I won't just limit myself to Al-Aqsa Mosque. I will tell you and will share with you glimpses into our everyday life during the last week. So within the Green Line, uh, which is part of historic Palestine, the Israeli occupation police and Israeli special forces have been waging an intensive campaign of mass arrests against Palestinians who have been protesting against Israeli policies, including in support of Jerusalem and Gaza. And this operation, which aims at suffocating and intimidating Palestinians and breaking the spirit of resistance that was on full show, especially last week, especially after the general strike last week, which Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line declared and which, in which they were also joined by refugees in the diaspora. This show of unity and defiance of Israeli colonial fragmentation to which Israel has been responding with heavy-handed repression, including mass arrests, particularly mass arrests of minors. Now, these mass arrests are targeting uh, Palestinians from uh, some of the most vulnerable communities, impoverished communities, obviously impoverished because of Israeli state policies. Many, the vast majority of those arrested don't have big social media profiles and are not well known. So they will most likely, their cases probably will not be documented. Obviously, they have been represented by volunteer lawyers who have been working tirelessly over the last month and they have to provide legal representation for all detainees, especially minors who, have, who are being intimidated, harassed, and abused in Israeli detention centers. So this is just what ha what's happening. And uh, there was a funeral of a 17-year-old uh, martyr, uh, Mohammed Kiwan, who was killed uh, by Israeli police. His, uh, his funeral took place last Thursday in Emil Fahim, which is a Palestinian town within the green, Palestinian city within the green line, and was joined by tens of thousands of, uh, of people. And just after the funeral, Israel used its under, um, uh, cover police, the Musta'aribin, who pretend to be Arabs in order to arrest those who participated in the funeral. And another mass arrest campaign was also waged in Emil Fahim. So this is just one example. Now, in Al-Aqsa Mosque, on Sunday, after Israel for the first time in three weeks allowed some uh, Israeli settlers to enter into Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the they couldn't be they couldn't get in during the past three weeks only because of Palestinian resistance uh, to their uh, in constant incursions and storming backed by the police into the mosque. So these settlers entered to the Al-Aqsa Mosque backed by the Israeli police, uh, to which obviously Palestinian responded and they were attacked by the Israeli police. So this is the scene of the everyday violence that happens in Al-Aqsa Mosque. Today, outside the... May I just come in there, Boudreau? Because this is, again, this is a, a revelation to us. I mean, why, why on earth would settlers be wanting to go into the mosque? What business is it of theirs to go into the mosque in the first place? Is this, are you saying this is a provocative, deliberate provocation by them to, to, to cause this reaction? This is what we don't understand. Why are settlers going into the mosque? Makes no sense. Claim, yeah, it's, they want to claim property over the place. Obviously, there are so many movements, especially the religious Zionist movement, the temple movement, those who want to reclaim and build the third temple and to destroy even Al-Aqsa Mosque. So you, you have this relative, uh, you have this rhetoric happening. You have those who contest the Palestinian ownership over their space. And there is a great deal of provocation also. So these incursions have been happening on and off, on and off, all the time, 
uh, and this is what this is what they wanted to do on the so-called day of the unification, with, which they call the unification of Jerusalem, in which they celebrate the occupation of the rest of Jerusalem, uh, the, its anniversary. So this is why they want to enter to provoke, obviously, but also to claim property uh, to which our Palestinians will um, typically respond by trying to defend their place and defend their mosque and defend its yards. And also the very fact that they enter storm the mosque backed with so many heavy police forces. It says a lot about that they know that they don't belong because it's, it says a lot about your fragility as a regime when you have to deploy all these forces just to protect uh, settlers entering and storming a place of worship, which is for Palestinian Muslims. Now, you, you asked me about the flag. Uh, the as far as Palestinians and the Palestinian flag are concerned, in Jerusalem in particular, although it's technically not a crime to hold to to hold that to wave the Palestinian flag, Israel does treat it as such. And the Palestine and people can be uh, detained. They, they are usually released, but they are just randomly detained and harassed if they raise, if they wave the Palestinian flag everywhere, but particularly in Jerusalem. And I always say it's if, 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 a, if a colonial force is so scared of a piece uh, of cloth, which is a flag, really. It tells you all you need to know about the powerlessness, the actual powerlessness of this force that which a flag can scare and intimidate so much. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to go to a couple of questions and also um, some greetings from uh, some of our viewers. Dave Chappell, uh, he writes, uh, first solidarity greetings to you all. Um, Dave is in Britain, by the way. He says, my member of parliament has responded to our lobbying by saying he supports sanctions, but only against illegal settlement goods and services. Uh, do you think this is possible to do in Jerusalem and the West Bank? Um, I'm going to take another question as well. This is actually from um, an anonymous attendee. I'm afraid we don't have his or her name. I've been following a pattern of assaults by illegal extremist settlers in the West Bank supported by their Zionist paramilitary police thugs on, on local Palestinians. Uh, in particular, I've been following events in the Salafit government area where there are vicious attacks against indigenous Palestinians on a daily basis. Uh, are Amani and Boudoua able to assist people in the Salafit area? Um, Amani, I'll come to you. Can I? Would you be able to ask that, uh, answer that, uh, the second question, and then perhaps uh, uh, go to Dave's question after that? Sure. Uh, I mean, in order to understand, I mean, people were referring to this partnership as collusion. This is the term that we have been hearing over and over in social media, right? But the core of the Israeli state is a colonial entity by definition meaning uh, there will be collusion between uh, the forces and the settlers. We're not speaking about two separate entities. This is the court. This is the foundation of the state of Israel. Um, so, and its basic uh, principle is the elimination of Palestinian, the confiscation of the land uh, and um, for the expansion of the settlements and having settler, settlers residing in, in um, in them, right? So once we understand this and we stop thinking that we are speaking about different systems where we have settlers and we have the state because it is all in one unity. It is inherent in the structure of the state. Um, what we were referring to is not happening only in the West Bank and in Jerusalem. And that's why people started realizing this more because the the green line that uh, sort of separated between the state of Israel and what is outside of the state of Israel, the east part of Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank is not there anymore. We have seen same practices that have been applied in the West Bank inside uh, the green line, inside the 
only democratic state of the Middle East, right? Going back to what uh, Boudour was uh, saying in a lead, we have seen um, lots of uh, lynches, mobs by uh, settlers against Palestinians. Even one uh, man uh, was killed in a lead. His name is uh, Musa Husni. He was killed by settlers and not only police who was attacking and killing. Um, and in Imm al-Faham, it was Mohammed um, Kiwan, the name that Boudour again mentioned, he was shot by the Israeli police. But to me, these two incidents, there is no difference between them. These are part of one system. So it's really important to understand that um, the, the military in, in itself is a basic uh, and a foundation of this state. And that's why we are seeing all of this violent and all of these arrests that have been the massive aggression and arrests towards Palestinians, we haven't seen anything, any measures are taking against the Israeli settlers who were attacking Palestinians, even in cameras. It was live attacks being recorded on main uh, Israeli media outlets. But if, of course, I mean, for us, it's obvious. And this is what we have been saying all the time. There is no difference between what is happening inside the state of Israel and outside the state of Israel. So people need to, re to realize that uh, we need to stop speaking about 67 as the occupation and we need to go back to the roots and understand all of these policies and how they have been applied on, on Palestinians. It doesn't matter if you are a Palestinian who's holding the Israeli citizenship or Palestinians a Palestinian holding the Israeli residency status or the um, Palestinian ID in the West Bank. The mere fact that you are a Palestinian, then you are a legal uh, target of attack by the Israeli system, the Israeli police forces, army, and the Israeli settlers at the same time. Amani, this is this is very interesting because I think um, what people have been able to see uh, is that this uh, response uh, has come right across historic Palestine, as you were just saying, and inside what is the pre-67 borders Israel, uh, mixed uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, towns and villages. There has been a, a, a response right across historic Palestine, which makes that point for you. And you know, when you see, as we've seen in the past few days, um, the New York Times, for instance, uh, actually talking about a policy of deliberately pushing Palestinians out, not only of the occupied territories, um, but also Israel itself, it then brings home that whole argument around apartheid. And you will have seen the uh, intervention by President Ramaphosa, who's talked about the apartheid system that used to be in South Africa and the apartheid system that he sees um, in Israel and Palestine but here's the question. Some people are saying, actually, uh, this kind of apartheid in Palestine is worse because the South African uh, white minority knew that they could never displace all of the black African majority into the homelands. They couldn't. But in, in Israel-Palestine, there, is there is this deep seated, long standing, continuing ethnic cleansing. That's been the wake up call, hasn't it? Yes, I agree. But I mean, you've mentioned several, several things, mm -hmm. uh, points that uh, I would like to clarify. Let's start by clarifying because I have been seeing um, uh, this term being uh, repetitive on different uh, media platforms mixed cities. And it's really important to put this in context and realize how problematic this definition is because the term itself has been, um, it's a colonial actually term during the British colonization in Palestine. And it was coined as um, a term that would uh, um, define um, certain specific cities where Israel were settlers who immigrated uh, from Euro Europe settled in. Um, and 
after the Nakba, when Palestinians were um, uh, ethnically cleansed from these cities, um, then Palestinians have become minority in these cities. So it's really important to understand that we don't call them mixed cities because it implies in it somehow that Israelis and Palestinians live in peace uh, and coexistence, quote unquote, in these cities. And it is not the situation on the ground. Um, we're, we're can, then... can I just come in there? Because, you know, for instance, we hear of the um, of the town of Lod. Now, that's the Israeli name for a Palestinian town. You'll tell us what the name is. But just tell us if you can, is it is that a, a town like that is actually divided into different neighborhoods? I mean, is it is it broken up like that? I mean, so people don't live next door together, Jews and Palestinians, they don't? So within this definition, we have five Palestinian cities. It is Yaffa, Akka, Illid, and Ramli, and Haifa. These cities were Palestinian neighborhoods where Palestinian lives were transformed into ghettos and poor living conditions. So there is a massive segregation and division between Palestinians and Israelis inside these cities, Palestinian and Israelis. And truly, I hate the term discrimination because again, it's not about discrimination here. So I don't want anyone to understand that I'm um, directing the, the conversation and uh, hinting that there is, there is discrimination, but again, it's not the core. The core is to ethnically cleanse Palestinians, to push them outside of these cities and to have majority of Israelis in all of these places, not only in Illid. So again, connecting these cities inside the Green Line to other neighborhoods such as Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem and what we are witnessing, settlers being replaced uh, uh, Palestinians being replaced in these communities with settlers. This is the same situation in these um, cities and in other cities in 48 inside the Green Line, there are different forms and different policies. Um, uh, in, in my hometown where um, I was born, for instance, in Imm al-Faham, there is no way for the city to expand any further because we are surrounded by different colonies. So these are different forms different policies, but they all, uh, and going back to your question about the apartheid and the settler colonial regime, I don't like when we export different forms and different frame of analysis from outside of Palestine in Palestine. There might be different, um, um, sorry, there might be similarities between the apartheid and uh, in, in South Africa and what is happening in some places of Palestine. But again, we, what we are saying in Palestine, and we want our um, point of analysis to start from Palestine, not anywhere else. We can always draw similarities and uh, create connections, but let's not forget that we have our unique um, context and we should refer to our context all the time and not export others. Um, and, and the core here is the land. Our, in my own opinion, it is our connection to the, to the land. It is our expulsion from our homes and our lands and the replacement uh, um, of Palestinian communities with, with Israeli settlers. This is the logic and it's not complicated. Uh, it's simple as it is. And this is what people should remember all the time. It, it might take different forms. Every case is, is uh, special in, uh, in a way, but this is the logic that I want everyone uh, listening to us to remember all the time. And it doesn't matter whether we're speaking about Palestinian communities, again, inside the Green Line or outside the Green Line, because this whole space is controlled by the State of Israel. So all of these policies uh, are uh, implemented by one uh, same source, uh, and uh, it, it's core, it's divide and conquer. And I just wanna add one last thing, what Palestinians managed to do uh, in, in this last month, and we should build on this, that we changed this 
dynamic. We are united more than ever. Um, and we all stood against the, this system of oppression and aggression together as one people, as one unity. Even refugees were marching towards the borders. And it's That's interesting, Amani. I mean, but you know, this is, I mean, Taking this on, I mean, and 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 talking about the the, the walls that the separation walls that have been built, uh, the the checkpoints, the controls, uh, it did appear that the Israeli state really thought that it had finally uh, managed to cordon off those difficult bits of the Palestinian territories uh, where it could take a bit more time to empty them out, if you like, over time. But has now discovered actually that this insurrection has gone right across historic uh, Palestine. It doesn't recognise. Uh, security boundaries, security walls, and all the rest of it. So ultimately, can the Israeli state maintain control um, if this uh, reaction it continues throughout the whole of historic Palestine as has been as has been happening? Oh, but you're not you're not switched on your microphone. Yes. So what has been happening is obviously a challenge to this Israeli system of control, which, are, which started in 1948. I just wanted to add to what Amani said regarding how what's going on in the West Bank is almost a photocopy of what was happening in 1948 after Israel occupied uh, Palestinians who remained on their land and then imposed a military regime over their lives for 18 years. The same permit regime that governed their life back then is used to govern the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank right now. Uh, the same policies Israel used to expropriate and confiscate their land, the same land theft policies which the Israeli court approved back then against Palestinians who had Israeli citizenship is now being applied and implemented and perpetuated in the occupied West Bank. So it's, it's more or less the same regime, it just has different manifestation. Now regarding your question of whether Israel will successfully uh, manage to control Palestinian lives, this is, how, this is what Israel has been trying to do over the last 73 years. After realizing that it can't entirely displace all Palestinians because Palestinians will resist and will stay on their land despite Israel's continuous massacres and attempt to ethnically cleanse them, it switched or reversed to other option, which is to suffocate them as much as possible within and to have as much as land as possible for itself and to just suffocate Palestinians and all uh, either to create a environment to force them to leave or just to uh, turn their life into living hell and to deprive them of all their basic rights and, uh, and in addition to services etc. Uh, this system of control has, I won't say collapsed, but it was shaken on many occasions. It was shaken during the first intifada, it was shaken during the first days of the second intifada when also in 2000 Palestinians all, all over history Palestine also protested together. We remember that 13 Palestinians within the Green Line were shot dead by Israeli police. We saw some glimpses of this all over uh, uh, solidarity within the Green Line and passed it in 2013 when all Palestinians protested to prevent the uh, ethnic cleansing of Palestinian Bedouin communities in Al-Naqab. The difference this time, I think, is the outright pouring of uh, expression of our Palestinian identity. Mark, we're talking about a generation, the fourth generation to Nakba, that was prevented of studying its own history, its Palestinian history at schools, that whose teachers can't even talk to them about Palestine. In the civics book, that is taught at Israeli curriculums in Palestinian schools in 1948. One of the books is called How to Be Citizens of Israel. This is what Palestinians are being taught. They're not being taught their own history. They're, they're not, they can't even commemorate the Nakba, the, the ethnic cleansing of their grandparents. They're denied to even say the word Palestine. They're taught that they're Israeli citizens. And suddenly all these attempts of indoctrination, of erasure have all fallen. When you see little kids in the street raising the Palestinian flag and waving it, one, one of a relative of mine asked me, when Palestine will be free, what will we rename our street in Nazareth? And he said that he was so certain, and he's it's just 14 years old, 
you see? So, and, 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 and you suddenly feel that this is not just an outpouring of uh, emotions. This is something, this is a new generation being uh, growing, being raised, just learning that all these tactics of fear, of intimidation, uh, under which our grandparents were forced to live, that this just doesn't cut it anymore. That's very interesting. I mean, as you were saying that, I was beginning to think also about the Uyghurs in Northwest China and the attempts to uh, stifle and, and get rid of the culture and, and religious adherence of, uh, and the historical memories of people there and looking at the international reaction to that and then comparing it to the international reaction with what has been going on as you were so succinctly explaining to us. Um, but I'm going to take a, a, just a, two or three questions and some points from people. Um, Brendan Campbell, uh, he asks, are there any legal funds we can amplify internationally? Um, John Dowdle says, neighborhood committees are set up to keep uh, Jewish-only areas. Can the legality of these committees not be challenged? Um, Rama Gihad says, well said, Armani, by the way. That's uh, one, one of your great fans out there. Um, Dave Chappell says, uh, Israeli extremism has been increasing everywhere in historic Palestine. Um, do Amani and Boudoua see significant numbers of non-Zionist Israeli, Israelis standing up in support of Palestinians against oppression? Um, are there, are there, is there support amongst Israelis? Have they, can they see what is happening and experience what is happening? And uh, I mean, we look at uh, Haaretz and we see other people who have been bravely speaking out, but how many Israelis are prepared to say that thus far, no further? I should come to you, Amani. I think. No, I was about to direct this to Boudour. Oh, okay, Boudour, there you go. <laughs> Mark, I, I, would, I want to answer this question, obviously, but I just want to answer a previous question. I think it's very important regarding mm -hmm. committees. Uh, in Israel, there was a system of committees designed to just receive people into, uh, to make Jewish-only cities. So you have these called acceptance committees. Uh, and if people want to get if residents want to live in certain committees, they have to be accepted within these uh, committees. In, 19, in the 1990s, one Palestinian citizen uh, protested petition to the high court against this policy of reception committees. He, he supposedly won the case in the court. But what happened is that these committees changed their policies and said that they would only accept people who quote unquote, meet the fabric of the committee. So they wouldn't say, let's have it Jewish only committees or areas. They would say, if you, in order for you to be received in these committees uh, and, and to live here, you have to meet the fabric. And obviously Palestinians don't meet the fabric of these cities. You have more than 900 uh, different towns within the green line in which Palestinians can't live. Uh, in addition to what Amani said regarding the inability of Palestinian town to expand while their lands were confiscated in order for Israeli, just in Nazareth, my hometown, where uh, my where I where my family lives, we can see beside us the colony of Nofa Galil, previously called Nazareth elite, expanding and growing and developing while we are suffocated in Nazareth and we don't have lands to expand. And there is not even any way to compare between the services, the privileges that uh, the colony enjoys while the indigenous, on the indigenous land of the villages and the city that uh, the, the villages like Safuri, for instance, and others that were ethnically, ethnically cleansed. Not to mention that all the factories that pollute the uh, air of Palestinian villages whose taxes revenues only goes to Nofagalit. So this is one example. To go to the other question that Amani deflected to me, thank you, Amani, <laughs> regarding whether there are Israel, whether there are non-Zionist Israelis and how many. There are a very small minority, an incredibly small minority of anti-Zionists who don't identify as Zionists, who support the Palestinian right of return, but they almost can be counted on the fingers 
okay, of two hands probably, they're, they're such a small minority. Uh, they exist, but many at the end of the day choose to leave because they don't want to live in a place uh, where they just enjoy, enjoy a privilege based on being born into a certain religion. So they choose to leave because they, they can't uh, be complicit and they know that somehow they are always complicit with the system. This There are, but regarding Haaretz, Yes, Haaretz is critical of Benjamin Netanyahu. I agree with that. And yes, they are liberal. But at the end of the day, the, the problem and the conflict and, and the dilemma to which uh, liberal Zionists have been falling in over and over again, when you start talking to them, okay, so what about the right of return? What about the, what happened in the Nakba? They say, okay, let's, let's talk about the Nakba. And indeed, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz said, let's talk about the, the Nakba. Okay, so we've talked about the Nakba. What next? What, should, what shall we do next after talking about the Nakba? What do you think about those who have been expelled from their land in 1948 to make way for the, the construction of the State of Israel? Do you support the right of return? Do you support having a state for equal rights for everyone, regardless of religion, ethnicity, etc.? And they would stop. And I believe, I personally believe that even those who are critical of Netanyahu, the liberal Israelis who are critical of Netanyahu, don't really deal with the root problem that exists there, which is the Zionist colonial project. It's not just that there is right and left and center. Because in the war on Gaza, just one example, one of the most uh, prominent feminist leftist Israelis, she's uh, the leader of the uh, Labour Party who was hailed as the new promise of the left, Mirav Michaeli. She said in an interview, I explicitly and unanimously support and believe in what the Israeli army does. She called it the, the Israeli Defense Forces. She praised the professionalism of the Israeli army in Gaza. All this while the Israeli army in Gaza was committing unspeakable massacres. So you have this face of the Israeli left praising the Israeli army, not even prepared to, uh, to criticize the militarism in the heart of the Israeli state. And she calls herself feminist and she calls herself leftist. And I don't know, I mean, are we supposed to be happy, to be proud that all oh, these are these are critical of Netanyahu? It's really not enough to be critical of Netanyahu or to be critical of right-wing mobs because this is the consequence of decades and decades of accumulated oppression that were, were mounted on the Palestinian people. And to remind you that the, the establishing force behind the Israeli state was not the right wing. It was socialist Zionists. And some of the worst massacres that were committed against Palestinians, Lebanese, were not committed by the Likud or by the right wing party, but rather by the labor, the Israeli labor, so-called leftist parties. The worst land confiscation plans were not carried out by the Israeli right, but rather by the so-called Israeli left. So when it comes to denying Palestinian rights to dignity, to return, to liberation, they all appear to agree on one thing. It's just that they have different tools, while one is naked while one is totally clear, the right is totally clear in its hatred of Palestinians. The so-called Zionist left tries to use euphemisms, tries to appear as if it's critical, but it doesn't even dare challenge the foundational myth upon which the Israeli state was established. I, I um, would well, thank you. Sorry, yes, can we carry on, Mani? I would like to add one level to this because, I mean, usually when we ask this question, so the next one would be why Israelis and Palestinians are not resisting and uh, co-doing all of these actions together, right? And, and or when people, rather than centering Palestinian voices, are quoting Haaretz and Gid'on Levi, and we should be thankful because Gid'on Levi in his articles, he's saying there is an occupation. So this is the position I want to speak about the position us Palestinians being put in from international uh, media and organizations and, and forced to adopt uh, these terminologies, not only terminologies, but actions. I mean, this is what the EU, for instance, has been imposing on Palestinian organizations in Jerusalem. Unless you have partner Israeli organization, we will give you, we will not give you funding. Let, let, 
Palestinians do more uh, work of coexistence. So the problem, and I totally agree with Fairuz, uh, with the, sorry, with Boudour, and if, if she could count 10, I might not be able to find this 10 non-Zionists in Palestine, because to me it is essential that they understand and acknowledge that by their presence in this land, they are um, on at the expense of Palestinians who are not being able to be here. And there are truly few that uh, we could think of that they have reached this level of understanding that the, the um, core of the existence of their state is contradicts everything they believe in. And they should refuse and reject all of these all of this structure by its core and, and not only defend Palestinians and the West Bank. This is what we um, are saying all the time. But I want to direct my um, uh, message now to international activists and organizations who are forcing us all the time and who are quoting all the time Israelis rather than Palestinians and give stages and platforms to Israeli leftists to speak on behalf of Palestinians. They can't speak on behalf of us. They can't um, tell our experience. And, and, and if we want to do something different on this level, we want to change this power dynamics. If you want to support Palestinians, then you should center our voices. You should follow our lead. You don't get to dictate on us how to do things, how to run our st struggle, and how to do our resistance with no conditions. Solidarity can't be conditional um, in any aspect, actually. Amani, I mean, it often comes as a surprise to people that um, if you're a Palestinian and you've been living in exile, you were driven out at some stage over the past 70 years, you could be living in a camp in Lebanon, you could be living in Jordan, um, you have no right of return. You cannot, you cannot return home. But if you live in Brooklyn, in New York, uh, and you've never been to Palestine, Israel, or whatever in your life, um, but you can, you can go, and you can get straight. You can get straight and become a citizen. This becomes. This is a real revelation to people. Um, and I suppose, if we're brutally honest, it it it's a it it all boils down in the end to a fear. Uh, it seems a fear of a secular, democratic, one-state solution. Because if everybody who has the right to return to Palestine did so, the demographics would be even more strongly in favor of Palestinians. Um, look, um, Amani, one more, but there's a point here. This is from uh, Yasmin Mansour. Uh, Yasmin says, there exists a term to describe the Israeli colonization of Palestine as a war. Uh, would you agree with that? How would you describe it? As what, war? She says um, uh, there exists a term to describe the Israeli colonization of Palestine as a war. It's a war, she says. That's what it is. Is that true? Or is that a bit uh, extreme? What is it? What do you think? To me, it's a settler colonial regime that is being supported by Western countries, uh, Europe and the US. War, it implies that we are again speaking about two entities, Israelis and Palestinians, but it is an international settler colonial regime because we just um, saw that uh, the Biden administration gave all of this amount of money for the state of Israel to still pay um, for um, the Iron uh, Dome, how is it called? Dome, Iron Dome, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's it's not only between Israelis and Palestinians. It is internationally. I mean, all of these um, Western countries are benefiting, profiting from this colonial regime because the expertise that uh, the state of Israel develop on our own uh, lives and bodies is being exported. Uh, this uh, oppression is being exported in different uh, uh, countries uh, around the globe, right? So let's not uh, look at it as um, um, a conflict that uh, is happening between two equal 
identities and we're not equal. Um, the power dynamics is well known. I, I want to believe for uh, everyone listening to us who has the power and who doesn't have the power. Um, so yes, to me, it's a settler colonial regime. Well, Amani, I mean, what we've seen, of course, is that some of the most advanced munitions um, are used um, by the Israelis, that we know that the United States sends some 3.8 billion in military aid to Israel every year. Uh, and we know also that some of these weapons are being exported from countries like Britain, too. Um, and, you know, some people believe this is a very useful testing ground for the uh, munitions companies. Yeah, um, and, and Mark just uh, one uh, one point to add here. Once we realize that this is the situation we're speaking of, then you and Britain, you should you have responsibility to change this because you are invested in this. So the solidarity with Palestine is not coming because uh, Palestinians are nice or making uh, nice food and welcoming and uh, loving. It is the essential understanding how complicit you are in it, how invested you are in it. So once you stand up against your own government and say, not in my name, this situation will be changed. This is what, um, th that's why it's really important to understand the, this logic behind this uh, colonial regime. Well, look, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're reaching the last few minutes um, of today's show, but there, there's a question I want to put to both of you. It's actually also come from um, one of our viewers, um, and I was going to put it as well, because we do boil down in the end to, you know, who is in Palestine, speaking for the Palestinians, um, and from anonymous attendee, I wish anonymous attendee would reveal him or herself because they're, they're very good questions. Uh, he, he, she says, but who represents and speaks for Palestinians? Is it uh, Fatah? Is it Hamas? Is it um, Mahmoud Abbas? Uh, what? And, and my question is, what happens to these elections now? Will they take place? Where, Palestine surely needs a powerful uh, unified voice right now. Um, so what's happening? Who speaks for Palestine? That's the question. Budu, I'm going to ask you first and then Amani. Mark, I just want, please, one point to continue on the resp British responsibility of what's happening in Palestine. It's just not, it's not only material uh, responsibility, it's also a responsibility of legacy. You know, right now, some of the emergency regulations that were enacted under the British mandate are still being used by Israel in order to repress us, like the administrative detention orders, the detention without charges or trial, like the Israeli policy of withholding the bodies of Palestinians, mar Palestinian martyrs, like the punitive home demolitions that are being carried out in the West Bank or in Jerusalem. All these policies have first been enacted in Palestine in accordance with emergency regulations that were imposed by the British mandatory regimes as a counterinsurgence mechanism. And now they have been part of the Israeli legislation and they continue to be used 70 or so years later against us. So there is this intellectual legacy, shall I say, or legal legacy of uh, counterinsurgency techniques that were used by British forces and continue to be used by Israeli, the Israeli regime. Concerning who talks for us, I mean, to be honest, even when there were declared elections, I never thought that whatever government would come out of that elections, it won't have any power to change anything because it would always be subordinate to the Israeli state. It's a government under occupation. What I do believe who can speak, I mean, we're seeing something massive on the ground right now. And each uprising on the ground should be able, if it's not repressed, and, and, and this one is repressed, but if it's allowed the space to do so, to produce its own leadership, its own leaders, it's not about speaking for anyone because everyone has her own voice, has her own opinion. So it's not that we want anyone to speak in the name of anyone. And unification is obvious, is also important, but not on behalf of quelling anything or accepting the, the dictates of the Palestinian Authority that has been using the word unification in order to silence anyone who opposes the uh, policies of the Palestinian Authority. 
So there, there obviously should be new, uh, new thinking of how to produce our own leadership that can come out of organizing on the ground rather than just waiting for uh, elderly people sitting there in the Muqata'a in Ramallah to decide who should speak for us and then receive their coordination and do their coordination business and coordination, security coordination with Israel. So even if the elections had happened, I doubt that a government working under occupation would be able to achieve anything. Uh, there is, it's not to me, uh, personally, I don't think I am the person who decide what shape this new organizing or new form should uh, take. What I do know that there are ways of new ways, new networks of organizing that are being fostered, that are being born out of the struggle uh, on the ground. Unfortunately, as what always happens in struggles, uh, once these uh, movements try to develop something counter, something resistant to the traditional leadership, to the elites, they're quickly repressed, not just by the occupying force, but also by the local elites. Budu, I'm going to have to come in there because we're really down to our last minute, unfortunately. Um, Amani, to you. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I just, uh, I don't want to repeat what uh, Budur uh, has said, so I agree. I reassure uh, all of the things they she mentioned. And what has been absent from uh, the last month and a half is the corrupted leadership. And it's really important to remember this. It is irrelevant for us. Uh, it has no power and we need to dismantle these systems as well and work towards new ones. Um, uh, I don't know how, it's a challenging task, but this is uh, the task that we need um, to take next, I believe. Amani, it does look to us sometimes that uh, Mr. Abbas could be uh, running the Transkai or the Siskai, or one of the Bantustans in South Africa, frankly. To uh, everyone but... listening, stop supporting the Palestinian Authority. This is the message. Well, there we are. The people take that on board and listen. Um, look, very quickly before we go, Chandni Chopra from Newcastle in the UK here. She says, I'm a firm supporter of BDS from my time in Palestine. I was shocked at the complicity of mainstream investors such as Airbnb, TripAdvisor, SodaStream. What about the ability to hold these organizations to account for breaches of international law? Um, Imani Benchow, she says, um, I beg, I beg a bit, Imain, I think that's your name, Imain Benchow, I hope I've got your pr pronunciation right. Will we have the third, uh, no, uh, she says, Amani and Boudoua, thank you so much for this incredible talk. Palestinians are a force to reckon with. And unfortunately, Natalie, we can't take your question because we're out of time. But look, thank you very, very much to Boudoua, to Amani. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please keep in touch. We want to, to have you back on Palestine Deep Dive again. Um, thank you to everybody at Palestine Deep Dive for making this all happen. Um, and until next time, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Amani and Boudou. Bye.